Hello, welcome to a discussion on biblical roles for women in the home and in the church. Kind of one of those easy topics that anybody wants to handle. It's, I don't know quite how it is that I keep getting these topics, but they do tend to fall to me for some reason. I think it's because the uh, every one of us who's a Christian who is attached to a local church is to play a role in that church. And that uh, role is described as being part of the body. I think my part of the body is the kidney. And as a result, some of those difficult topics sometimes fall on me. That being said, um, I just want to offer the fact that uh, dealing with this issue of women's roles within the home and within the church, we're aware that it has created a great deal of tension, that topic, uh, in society, in the home, and in the church. A long history of women being marginalized and minimized, mistreated and dominated, has given way to much righting of wrongs within our culture as obstacles to women taking a full part in employment and in education has taken place. And that's a necessary correction. Uh, many laws which intentionally or indirectly prohibited women from equal treatment of the law have been rewritten. Women who have been abused physically or sexually have increasingly been getting the opportunity, uh, satisfaction's too strong a word, but the opportunity to see those who have perpetrated these abuses um, held to account, certainly not all the time, any more than any of these changes that we see are all the time. But there's been a movement in a good direction in, in many ways with respect to women uh, receiving a measure of respect or a measure of practical equality within the home, within the community. And that's as it should be. Uh, that being said, not all the role changes for men and women in the last 60 years have been positive. When these needed changes are combined with unbiblical views of God and of men and of women and of the family, it can be argued that we've actually ended up with a less well-balanced, less healthy society over these last 60 years. Uh, this short talk, this brief um, interaction, brief, um, by some standards, wouldn't be that brief. It might be an hour long. Uh, but, but when you look at something as small as this, obviously, uh, we're not going to try to resolve all the tension between the sexes. And we're not going to stand as a complete correction to all the harm thrust on women by men or, or the harm on society by the many ways we've departed from biblical teaching with regard to roles. But it does attempt to renew a focus on a foundational biblical instruction about roles. Um, it's an attempt to say, what does the Bible fundamentally say from cover to cover about the nature of women and their roles within the home, within the church, within the society, um, to the extent that we can address those things? Some things we don't know, but there are enough that we do that it serves us well to look at the Bible um, broadly, as well as in a little detail, to see if we can't uh, figure out what God intended for uh, women in these regards. Now, I have to say at the outset that our focus is going to be limited. It's going to be limited primarily to the home and church. 
very little comment about the society. And the reason for that is the essential nature of the instruction in the Bible regarding men and women with respect to one another, uh, with respect to roles. Um, that's pretty much all the Bible addresses. Uh, certainly the Bible has many implications about societal roles, but it really doesn't get into a great number uh, of uh, comments about how women are to be regarded with respect to education, employment, and those sorts of things. Um, we have to, what we have to do is extrapolate. Since God made man and woman in his image, he's made them uh, equal. Um, Peter says this too in chapter in First uh, Peter chapter three and verse seven. When it's talking to husbands, it actually says she's a co-heir of the grace of life with you. In other words, it's a way of saying men and women are equal before God. So there are things in the Bible that address some of these more broad societal things, but but I think we have to stay largely with what the scriptures have to say about men and women with respect to one another, uh, which will be predominantly within the family, secondarily within the church, and to some extent, the society. Um, that said, um, even though these changes that have been wrought over the last half a century or so, although many of those are good with respect to women getting um, the obstacles being removed from them pursuing education or opportunity, uh, although there are many uh, good things that have happened because of that. One of the drawbacks that has happened, uh, certainly in my lifetime, is that the idea that there really are roles for men and women has largely been jettisoned. Uh, it's certainly been jettisoned in the society, and, and I, I think I understand that more. I, I don't even want to make a great many comments about that. That's much more of a political issue, um, and and. Uh, Frankly, as I said, I think some of those things are, are really good. They were necessary changes. But, but I think the real issue is that many people within the family, many people within the church, have left aside many of the teachings in the Bible that have to do with prescribed roles for men and women. And um, the other thing that I see, in addition to the fact that many people have lost sight of the roles that the Bible does address with respect to uh, men and women, is that the principle that uh, the, the second principle is that the essence of sin, if I understand it at all, the essence of sin seems to come down to disregarding God's words. You know, if we could just break down any sin, it really comes down to the fact that God has revealed himself and we say no. So if those are true, if those two statements are true, if it is true that God has prescribed certain roles, and if it's true that man has disregarded what God has said, if those are two true statements, then I, I think it should um, not be a surprise that as a society, we struggle with respect to the tension between men and women uh, because God has spoken and we don't follow it. Um, and then we disregard that God has spoken about it. Fortunately, this is part of the good news, which should always be the case with Christian teaching. The Bible also teaches that Jesus Christ is our redeemer. That means he buys back those things that were wrong and he writes them. Uh, Jesus isn't overwhelmed by things that are done wrong. 
If I have an improper view of myself as a man or of my wife as a woman or women in general, uh, if any of those things are wrong, the Redeemer sets those right. He, he, at least he offers to. We have to appropriate that. But that means that whenever you see what I would call a kind of a good news, bad news, uh, the good news is God made us with many abilities and God made us in his image and he made us equal, all those good things. And then we see the bad things, how people are treated or what people do with that. There's always another set of good news. God is a redeemer. And that means that if in fact we have mistaken if we have misunderstood, if we have failed to listen to God's instructions about men or about women, uh, that's not the end of the story. The end of the story can be, wait a minute, Jesus can redeem my misapprehension of marriage. He can, he can correct me about how I view myself as a husband or as a father or somebody else as a wife or a mother or, or whatever role a person happens to fulfill within society. In fact, that's why Colossians 1.13 says, he rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son. In other words, all of us in various ways are in darkness. And when a person comes to Christ and travels behind him as they walk with him, they experience being transferred into the kingdom of his son. We, we get this uh, new perspective, if you will. Uh, likewise, Romans 6.18 says, you've been freed from sin but you became slaves of righteousness. In other words, yes, I have freedom, but it's freedom to follow. It isn't freedom in and of itself and for itself. It's freedom to be able to follow the purpose of God. So hopefully as we get started on this big topic of uh, the roles of women within the family and within the church, I hope that we'll just start out with the recognition that if we do have misapprehensions, and if we do a faithful job with the scriptures, God will buy that back. He'll take us into a new place with respect to how we look at these things. Let's start first at creation, because I think what we're gonna do is we're gonna look at three various phases of the roles of women. Now, obviously, of necessity, I'll have to talk a little bit about roles of men, but not as much. The focus of this will be 90% on women. Um, but of necessity, we're going to see those roles um, contrasted at times. So sometimes we'll have to speak about the men in order to make what we say about the women a little more apparent. Here are the three areas that we're going to hear me address this. First is creation, then is the fall, and then is redemption. In other words, if I may say it this way, we're going to talk about God's design for men and women, and we're going to ask the question, does the creation account teach directly or imply strongly that men and women were built with different roles in mind? That's the first question. The second question has to do with, with the fall. Does the fall reveal in any particular ways these different roles? Just as we ask the question, does creation reflect different roles? We're asking, does the fall itself show different roles? Can we, by looking at the biblical record of the fall, actually see men and women in different roles where we actually see something different about men and women that tells us something about the, the nature of men and women? And then the third one is, in the redemption 
account, in the redemptive story of God, where he reaches out to people of every tribe, tongue, and people with this gospel of Jesus Christ, his son, sent to die for the sins of everyone in the world, that they might come to know him, and by knowing him, they might become new people. And as they become new people, they would learn to live according to a new ethic, which his Holy Spirit inspires and enables them to be able to do. And, and if so, does that redemptive story include with it some element of roles for men and women? That's kind of the outline of where we're going. First, with respect to creation, the distinction of roles for men and women, I'm going to contest, begins in Genesis chapter 2. In Genesis chapter 1, we have what's familiarly called the telescopic view of creation, meaning it's the big picture, six days of creation. Uh, we see the creation of light. We see the creation of darkness. We see the creation of, of uh, land and sea and stars and, and other uh, celestial things. We see the, the uh, creation of land animals and sea animals and animals that are in the, in the sky. We see uh, creation of all of these things, and it culminates in the creation of mankind. And we really just see a very quick synopsis of the creation of man and woman in verses 26 through 28, all that being in Genesis 1. And there it says, he made him male and female in his image. He made them male and female. And he gave them what's called the creation mandate, where he says, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, and subdue it. So that's what we get, which is the telescopic view. But but no roles are shown in Genesis 1. The question is, do we begin to see roles, whether directly taught or clearly implied, in Genesis 2? That's the question. I will say this. In order to see the roles in Genesis 2, I think one of the things we're going to find is that we really have to observe some things closely. I think one of the things we'll find is that as God sometimes does, he teaches by story. He doesn't always teach didactically. In fact, as the revelation of God proceeds, we, we often will see, uh, especially uh, certain teachings like with respect to roles, I think the didactic nature, meaning the instruction from an authority to someone who is uh, under the authority, the one way, instruction, not the discussion, not the narrative where there's a story told, but the didactic do this and don't do this kind of a thing. That happens more as the story develops. So when we get to roles, we're going to see that more towards the end. But what we're going to see at the very beginning is that the instruction we see is more within the context of narratives, more within a story. Um, for example, let's start seeing the element of roles by the way God makes the man and the woman. We read in chapter 2 that the man was made first, Genesis 2, verse 7. Now, in and of itself, that doesn't tell us anything. Uh, it, it, God could have conceivably made them at the same time. Uh, it wouldn't have been a difficult thing for God to, out of the dust of the ground, make the man and the woman at the same time. Um, he didn't, and he bothers to record it. In fact, he didn't have to record it. He could have just said the man and the woman were there when he said, let there be man and woman, the way he did with other animals and creatures. But he specifically chose to say that he made the man first. Now, as I say, in and of itself, that doesn't mean anything. But if it becomes part of a pattern, if we begin to see other things that are a direct offshoot of that, then we look backwards and go, oh, he was implying something right from the beginning when he made the man first. 
The second thing we see is that he was given a responsibility of cultivating and keeping the garden. Cultivating is a Hebrew word, chabad, which means to work, uh, to work and to tend. Um, it's, it's, a, it's a word that specifically means that you're, um, um, you're direct in your involvement. Um, without going into detail, it would be similar in a church where you have deacons and elders. This would be the role of the deacon in the sense that there's a direct hands-on involvement uh, of working something through. Of, it's, it's actually uh, the word serve. You can even, for the word Chabad, you can even include that idea of serving. It's very, very much hands-on. Uh, the other word it says is keeping. He's given the responsibility to cultivate and to keep. And the word keep is the word shamar, which means to oversee or to manage. It has more to do with that idea of seeing to it that something is done. And this man, before he has a wife, is given the responsibility to cultivate and to keep, to tend and to manage the garden. Now, again, I'm going to say um, in and of itself, that doesn't mean anything. He could have easily given the woman that, that task. He could have given both of them that task. But what we observe is that he happened to give the man that task. And interestingly, he gave the man that task before the woman came onto the scene. He didn't have to do that, and he certainly didn't have to record it. He chose to record giving the man this responsibility. Once again, I'm going to say, we can't draw any strong conclusions from it unless, as the story unfolds, we look back and say, oh my goodness. He was telling us something then, which I believe is actually what we have. It also tells us that the man was given a command to eat freely of the fruit of the tree, of any fruit of any tree in the garden except the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And he was told that if he ate from that one, in the day he ate from it, he would surely die. Now, uh, that's kind of interesting because he could have waited until he made the woman. God could have waited before he gave that command. But the, he bothered to give it to the man alone. And once again, I'm going to say that doesn't prove anything in and of itself, unless, as the story unfolds, there are specific particulars that make us, when we look back, go, oh my goodness, he was actually telling us something when he told the man this command when the woman was not present. There's something to that that has to do with the man and the woman. Um, also, it's interesting, he He's, he was given the job of naming the animals and then naming his wife. Now that, again, in and of itself isn't anything terribly significant, except for the fact that as societies evolve, uh, as time goes over time, we find that people who are in positions of naming, it's actually a sign of their headship over those things. That is a certain, um, I am over this person I get the right to name like naming a company or naming something else. It's, it's not a big thing. And it only becomes important if, again, as the story unfolds, we go back and say, oh my goodness, God was painting a picture all along, something he wanted us to understand. So that gives us a number of things that we observe. And right now we're saying largely they're just observations. And they only become important if together they start to tell us a story. We then read in Genesis chapter 2, verse 18, that God makes the woman. And it, it even goes so far as to say why he made the, her. He says, it is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. So she was made as the man's helper. Specifically, she was made to be able to help him with his aloneness. Um, 
1 Corinthians 11 will later remind us of this when it will say the woman was made for the man and not man for the woman. Now, we know that it's not good for a man to, uh, woman to be alone either. And we know that women could tend and keep gardens if they wanted to. So there's, there's something here where we say, is the fact that God made the woman for the man, is it significant? Does it mean anything? Or would it have just been the same if he made the woman and then made the man? Um, is, are these observations that we have actually part of an intentional message by God? I'm, as you can tell, my, I keep bringing that up. It's because I think they do. And I think that story becomes more and more clear the more that we proceed. A final thing that we notice is that God assigns the man the responsibility of leaving his father and his mother and of being joined to his wife. That's not to say that there's not some leaving by a woman or not some cleaving by a woman. I, I don't, I'm not saying that there isn't. I think of somebody getting married this uh, coming weekend whom I know. And to some extent, she is leaving her parents. But the, the, the scripture gives the priority, the, the focus. God says that the man is to leave his father and mother. The man is to cleave to his wife or, or uh, draw near his wife. Now, we are going to see that God does give one command to both of them, and that is that they are to become one flesh. So there's this, this burden for physical and emotional unity is on both of them. But the first responsibility with respect to the marriage, it says in terms of leaving and, and cleaving, is, is more on the man. Um, once again, proves nothing in and of itself. But if it's part of a pattern, then we need to be able to see and draw from that some of the implications with respect to the roles that God intends for us to carry. Um, I am going to suggest that as we move on, one of the things we'll see is that when God tells the man in Genesis 2 to leave father and leave mother, what he's saying is, I want the man to take the responsibility to lead a a certain self-reliant new home. I don't mean self-reliance apart from God, obviously. We're always to be in reliance on him. But a self-reliance of sorts that says, I'm not dependent on my parents to be able to make my way in the world. My wife and I are going to be a, again, understand this word with a small s, not a big s. We're going to be a sovereign entity within our home. We're under the sovereign, but... I'm not depending on mom and dad to bail us out. I'm actually willing to tell my wife, I want to take a lead in helping provide for us and lead us. And, and I want to be a source of strength and protection to you. And that is why I believe he does it. Now, we don't have that much information here to know that. And once again, that won't be confirmed unless we see the rest of the story of the Bible supporting that idea. But I'm giving you that as a little bit of a something to kind of look for and see whether there is a support for it. I don't think it's incidental that God gives us this description that the man is told specifically to bear the brunt of leaving parents and to bear the brunt of moving towards his wife. I believe there's a, an aspect of leadership that we'll see a little bit later. Um, so I'm going to say that many, many people today, certainly in society, but even in the church, will tell us that everything I've just gotten through saying is merely descriptive. It's not at all prescriptive. 
that it just happens that the Bible records the man was made first. It just happens that God gave him the command first. It just happens that the woman was made for the man, but that there's no meaning in that, that there's no um, identity truth woven into that, that it's, it's really just a way a story is recorded. Uh, I'm going to argue that I think the rest of the scripture makes it quite plain that God was not accidental or incidental about any of it, but it was actually a, uh, a narrative portrait of his design for the home. Now let's look at the fall. As we saw differences in roles between men and women in creation, we will also see differences in roles following the fall into sin. But just as the last sin thing before sin was a common experience between the man and woman, remember he said, they shall become one flesh. The very last thing that we get to read is there's a burden on both of them, as well as the description that they're both naked and not ashamed. The last description before sin comes into the world is a description of something they share. We're going to see in just a moment that the very first thing that happens after the fall is also something they share, something that is not role-based. Uh, so I think it's interesting how we look at this passage and we'll see certain things that are role-based and some that are not. Um, for example, where in Genesis 2.25, it says that uh, 24.25, they shall become one flesh. They were naked and not ashamed. That's what they have in, in common. So similarly, it says in verse 7 of chapter 3, which is where we'll go now, Genesis chapter 3, it says in verse 7, their eyes were opened and they saw that they were naked and they sewed fig leaves together. That's very much of a they. And I'm saying this for a particular reason, because since they both experienced shame when sin came up and they both attempted to use their own resources to cover up, then as soon as they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, they hid themselves from him. Both of them did. Certainly the first time they didn't want to be in communion with him. They attempted to again use their own resources to protect themselves from an impending judgment which they felt they were due. They couldn't articulate it, but they felt it in their gut. The minute the, minute the man ate, we're going to see importance in that, by the way. It doesn't say when the woman ate. It says when the man ate, both of their eyes were open. And we're going to see some reasons for that related to roles. But it's interesting that the first thing that happened as soon as they both felt shame was that they both covered up and then they both went into hiding. Now, I bother to point this out because I want something to not be lost. And that is just as God makes us both in his image and we are equal as can be, it's also true that we're equal as can be when it comes to sin in this sense. There's great value in looking at roles. I think we can understand more of God's heart. I think we can learn some things about how to build a family and how to build a church and, and, and how to operate within society. I think those are really good and worthwhile things. But I think we need to remember that whether we're male or female, made in his image, we're sinners and we need his mercy. Sometimes we have a tendency to think she is more sinful than I, he is more sinful than I, and we tend to remove ourselves from the element of responsibility because their particular sin is more odious than yours, at least in your sight. I just think it's important to start before we get into this example of how the roles show up different after the fall, uh, that, that we see that we're more alike than we are different. Now, as to the roles. Genesis chapter 3, we notice something. That is that the devil goes after Eve first, not the man. 
once again, I'm going to say that doesn't prove anything in and of itself. It won't prove anything unless we look back and say, my goodness sakes, there really was a pattern here. But it does say that the, that the, that the devil, specifically the serpent, went for the woman. It was quite intentional. He struck up, struck up a conversation with the woman. By the way, isn't it interesting that as soon as God comes into the garden, he starts going for the man? Satan goes for the woman. God goes for the man. Does that mean that Satan likes women and God likes men? No, of course not. But if there really is a picture of roles that's being portrayed, then we might be able to look back and say, my goodness, God was looking to the man as the head and Satan wanted to undermine the headship of the man by going through the woman. Is that really possible? Well, let's just stay tuned and see what observations we make. Genesis chapter three, then the devil goes after the woman uh, first, whereas after sin, God doesn't go after the woman first, but after the man. As soon as sin comes and the man and the woman try to avoid God, God calls out to the man first. Now, remember this, the woman ate first. So he certainly could have called the woman first. Or they both sinned, so he could have called to the man and the woman. I find it interesting that though the man ate second, God specifically called out the man. And, and lest we think, like I said earlier, that some people think this is merely descriptive, it's not prescriptive, it's not, it doesn't carry meaning with it, you've got to remember what Romans chapter 5 says. Romans chapter 5 says, sin came into the world through one man, and then he names him, Adam. He doesn't say through one man and one woman. Do you realize that in the few verses of Romans chapter 5, verses 12 through 19, he mentions the man specifically nine times? Isn't that remarkable? That's nine times when the writer could have said, mankind in the garden, or the man and woman, or the woman who gave to the man and the man who ate. He could, all the different things. But do you know that nine out of nine times, the man, the man, the man, the man. And then to top it all off, Paul in that same writing parallels the man, Adam, to the man, Jesus. He actually even refers to Jesus as the last Adam. He is not like the first Adam. He's different than the first Adam. The picture is clear in Romans chapter 5. God completely, it is not accidental that he comes to the man first. He holds the man responsible for the sin. Now, we're going to have to soak on that and see whether the remainder of Scripture ends up giving us more reason for that and more significance to that observation. The roles are further hinted at by what happens between verses 9 through 12 when God comes to the garden and speaks to him. He says, where are you? He says, who told you that you were naked? He says, have you eaten from the tree I told you not to? These are the things God asks the man. As has been pointed out by others, this isn't because God didn't know the answers to these questions. He's inviting the man, it could be said, into a further relationship with him by asking these questions. And I find interesting that the man, as makes sense after he falls into sin, blames his wife and indirectly God. He says, the woman you gave me, she took from the fruit and gave it to me and I ate. Now, some could say, well, he's just being thorough. I don't think he's being thorough. I think he's being intentional. He, he wants to say, I'm going to admit it because you probably already know it. But let me remind you, 
I was really doing great with the golden retriever, but you happened to give me this woman and she took the fruit and, and gave it to me. And what was I supposed to do? Disappoint her? I mean, that was the meal for the, you know, for me. And I, I, I can't speak ill about her cooking. Um, I think the man is throwing the woman under the bus. Now, again, if there's not more evidence later to support the thing I'm saying, then, then I'm making an unfair presumption. But if there is more evidence later to, to support this and endorse what I'm getting ready to say, then I think it's good for us to recognize by what happens right after the fall, we actually see the opposite of what the man was supposed to be. He was supposed to be a protector. He was supposed to be a provider. He was supposed to be somebody who cared for, who husbanded his wife. But instead, he's willing to find how she contributed to his misery. And he's more important at reporting, he's more devoted to reporting that than he is to looking at his own shortcoming and say, Lord, do away with me, give her another chance. That sacrificial leadership is nowhere in sight. And we only know how important that is because of what scripture goes on to show us a little bit later. Notice the next thing that happens that further delineates roles. When God speaks to the woman, he's going to make a prophecy. I do find it interesting, by the way, that in this passage, God speaks to three entities. He, he speaks to the serpent, he speaks to the woman, he speaks to the man. But do you know, only to the serpent and to the man does he say, because of what you've done? He doesn't say anything to the woman about because of what you've done. He holds the serpent accountable for what he's done. He holds the man accountable for what he's done. But there, there's a, and, and it, once again, uh, the passage doesn't tell us why that is. We have to look and say, is that part of a pattern that the scripture is continuing to, to fill out? But I find interesting that what God does is he speaks to the woman a type of judgment she's going to experience, and it has two elements, three elements, if you will. It says, number one, I will multiply your pain in childbirth. In pain, you will bring forth children. So the first experience of the fall that she's going to have that is a negative consequence uh, that, is, uh, that he prophesies over her is in the area of childbirth, which, by the way, is something that only a woman can experience. It's interesting that the experience of the fall is going to be in the area of her sexuality meaning in her feminineness. When I say the word sexuality, I mean broadly as being a female. I don't mean, um, I don't mean in sexual activity uh, or the way people sometimes use the word sexuality. Sexuality has to do with everything about you that's female. Well, it so happens that you can't get much more female than the ability to have children. And that's exactly where he goes. And then do you notice the second place and third place that this this judgment, if you will, falls on her. One is your desire will be for your husband, and two is he will rule over you. Now, if we just had those words, if all we had was the English words, your desire will be for your husband, he will rule over you, we really can't tell that this is very much of a judgment, and we certainly can't tell that it is directed right at her sexuality, that her, if you will, her roles. But here's I'm going to tell you why I think it is directed directly at her roles. First is because the word that is used, um, Moses is the one who wrote Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. And the Hebrew word that he uses to express what God said is the word teshuga, 
And teshuga is a word that has, like so many Hebrew words, it's, it's got um, kind of multi facets to it, multi sides to it. But one of the interpretations of teshuga, and one that I think is exactly what's meant here, as well as in the very next chapter when it's used again, is the idea of a desire to control. Um, others have, other commentators have suggested maybe this desire is like sexual desire. Your desire will be for your husband. That doesn't make any sense. How would that be a judgment against, uh, over her or over the man? I mean, that's a nice thing, I guess, you know. Uh, that just doesn't make very much sense. But the thing that does make sense, not only in the Old Testament here, not only in the very next chapter where it's used by the same author, but in what we're going to see in the New Testament, is this desire to control. Um, when God is speaking to Cain in chapter 4, he says, sin's desire is for you, but you must master it. Exact same word. Notice the parallel construction. In chapter 3, it says, your desire is for your husband. And then it says, and he will rule over you. Then in chapter 4, it says to Cain, your desire, uh, sin is desiring you, but you must master it. Both times being used about control. And, and so the first thing I have to say is that this teshuga, this word that's used, uh, tells me that he's not talking about some positive desire. He's talking about a, a negative desire that only came about because of the fall. Second thing that's important to use is the word that he used for control. Many people, many people who even who consider themselves religious, some of whom are Christians, some of whom are not, many times scholars will say, don't you see in this passage it shows that male headship is part of sin? Because it says the man will control you. Here's the problem with that. This is not a word for headship. It's not a word for position. It's a word for character. It's a, it's a word masal, and it means to harshly dominate or harshly rule. In other words, what God is saying is now because of sin, you are going to be tempted to try to grab the control from your husband, but he's going to have a tendency to dominate you. He's going to have a tendency to be harsh. Isn't that interesting? That's exactly what abuse is. It's a, it's a harsh rulership. It is masal. God is prophesying. He's not saying he's pleased with it. He's just saying now because of sin, that which was the instinct that was put in you as a man who was made in my image to protect, to provide, to lead, to love, and to sacrifice will get turned on its ear and you'll now become abusive in your nature. Now, some people say, well, there's some men who aren't that way. That's true. But the vast majority of men who aren't that way tend to in the exact opposite direction towards passivity. They reject their responsibility to take leadership. So that's, it's interesting. It's, it's flip sides of the same coin. One says, I'm going to lead by dominating you and putting you in your place. And the other says, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to avoid failure by just not leading. But in either case, I believe what we're getting in chapters 2 and 3 is the beginning of a role which will be further amplified in the New Testament that actually does teach this leadership role that, that needs to be better understood, needs to be remembered. Um, so when sin comes in the world, what comes with it is the core source of tension and division between the sexes. Sin provokes the woman to want to control, provokes the man to want to dominate. Since our main focus in this talk is on the woman and her roles, we're not going to speak very much about the man. But I do believe it's worthwhile to note this uh, before we come to the end of our discussion on, um, on the fall and the impact on the roles of the fall. Notice that 
after God speaks to the woman about what she should respect, expect because of sin, he speaks to the man. I said earlier that he speaks to the woman with respect to her roles. The role with children, the bearing of children, the role with her husband, and the issue of control, if you will. But isn't it interesting, it would be interesting to me if when God speaks to the man, if he also speaks to him about his roles. Well, here's what we get. He tells the man that by the sweat of your brow, you will be able to provide bread. He actually makes that promise, that promise three times to God. I mean, to Adam. What's so interesting is three times he promises you will eat, you will eat, you will eat. And he means you and your family. You're going to eat. So he's saying, I'm going to provide for you. But three times he says, but it is going to come from toil. It is going to come from blood. It is going to come from sweat. In other words, one of the areas that a man most keenly identifies himself as a man in the realm of his work, he will experience the struggle. He will experience the disappointment. How do we know disappointment? Because he says, the ground from which you want to get bread is going to provide thorn and thistle. It will provide enough for you to eat, but along the way will be thorn and thistle. What he's referring to is all kinds of struggle and frustration that is inherent in the work you're going to be doing, meaning you're going to be disappointed, you're going to be let down, whether it's by a boss, whether it's by processes, whether it's by taxes, or whether it's by the government, or whatever it is by, you're going to experience thorn and thistle. But I'm going to provide enough for you to eat. That is directly in the role, in the place where a man experiences some of his uh, biggest identity is within the role of his work. But notice the second place he's going to, the second thing that he'll notice. We've already said that he's going to have a tendency to want to control his wife and he's going to feel controlled by her. So that also is an area of his role. Um, when a man feels like he's being controlled by his wife or being looked down upon or being uh, critiqued or being evaluated, it has a tendency to stimulate the fleshliness of a man. Uh, if, if a woman is finding fault with a lot of things, by the way, many of which may be true, many of which may be accurate, you'll many times see a man either avoid her or get enraged at her. You'll rarely find a man and no man by instinct will humble himself, thank her for her input, repent, and begin to work on how he can change. Now, all that's available through Christ. But what we end up getting is the exact opposite. And we say, well, that's just normal. Whoever gets criticized is going to fight back and get defensive. I just don't think that's true. It's, the only way it's true is through sin. So I think we do well to just think there at the moment, while our main focus is not on the man, isn't it interesting that the way sin is going to impact him also happens to do uh, with, with his roles, the roles of his work and the role of his relationship with his wife. So apparently, when God made the man first, I'm saying... When God gave him the responsibility to work the land and manage it, when God gave him the command about eating to the man, when God made the woman for the man and gave the man responsibility to name her, when God held the man responsible for the first sin, when the woman's experience in the fall will involve her role as a bearer of children uh, and, and her role as a wife to a husband, when the man's experience from the fall involves strain in his work and a battle for control with his wife, when all of these occur together, I believe it's apparent that roles are central to the design and the fall of men and women. 
And with that as a backdrop in a moment, we're going to see if that's true, does it continue when we get to the redemptive story, to God's restoration of men and women and their roles. Perhaps we could say it like this, in God's economy, uh, that English word economy comes from a Greek word that is spelled almost the exact same, which literally means household. So in God's economy or household, the man is the leader whom God gave the responsibility to provide and protect his wife and family. The woman is the helper who helps him in his aloneness and in his ability to produce offspring, which was part of the creation mandate, mandate of filling and subduing the earth. As persons made in the image of God and as recipients of his grace, they are equal in substance and worth. Um, because they were both made in the image of God, uh, because at one level, Paul says in Galatians 3, verse 28, there's neither male nor female, meaning that when it comes to being in Christ, uh, we're all ultimately the same before him. It doesn't mean there aren't different roles. It just He's just saying we're fundamentally the same. Don't look at yourself as superior to another. Um, when we see what happens to the roles after redemption, I believe we're going to see these roles and their distinctness come even into sharper focus. For example, begin with me. Um, we read in Ephesians chapter 5 that within the family, a husband is the head of his wife. We read that in chapter 5 and verse 23. Uh, I'll read that. Um, Ephesians chapter 5 and verse 23. And this is interesting because this is not being told to the man. This is being told to the woman. By the way, I think there's a really important message there. I don't want to get ahead of myself too much. But isn't it interesting that he doesn't say, husband, go be the head of your wife. Instead, he says, the husband is the head of the wife as Christ is the head of the church, he himself being the savior of the body, but it's within the context of speaking to the woman. I, I, I don't want to push this too much, but I find it interesting. In fact, it reflects 1 Corinthians chapter 11. I find it interesting that in, these passage, in this passage, Ephesians, as well as, as I said, 1 Corinthians, God... God tells uh, each one of us the thing that we need to know within our role to fulfill the purpose of God. So he tells the he doesn't tell the man, go be head. He tells the woman, by the way, he is the head of his wife. Um, similarly, He's going to say to husbands, husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by washing water with the word. He might present to himself the church in all of her glory, having no spot nor wrinkle nor any such thing, but that she would be holy and blameless. So husbands ought also to love their wives of their own body. Notice it's not telling wives, your husbands need to learn how to love you. See, it tells the wives what they need to know. It tells the men what they need to know. And this is what I want us to see with respect to the redemption. The redemptive description of roles, and we're going to look at a passage in 1 Corinthians 11 in just a moment. The redemptive picture of roles is the exact antithesis of what we just read about the fall. Everything God just said about the man and the woman because of the fall he now gives a, what I'm going to call a redemptive instruction, which reverses the, the pattern 
that was set in the fall. So you can turn, if you had 1 Corinthians 11, you can turn there or just listen as I read. I'm just going to read a few verses. It says, be imitators of me, this verse one, just as I also am of Christ. So that's kind of a general heading, if you will, before everything that comes b b below. Uh, very interesting, by the way, uh, Ephesians chapter five, which we just got through reading from, we began reading in verse 22, but it's very interesting that the very first verse in that chapter, um, Ephesians chapter five and verse one says, imitate, uh, be imitators of God. And now Paul, at the beginning of 1 Corinthians 11, where he's also going to talk about roles, starts out by saying, be imitators of me as I am of Christ. So what he's talking about is that within our roles, we're actually imitating God. We're actually imitating Christ when we, when we put on these attitudes and actions that he's trying to teach us. He says this, I praise you because you remember me in everything and hold firmly to the traditions as I tr delivered them to you. But I want you to understand that Christ is the head of every man the man is the head of a woman, and God is the head of Christ. Three things he says. Christ is the head of every man. The man is the head of a woman. God is the head of Christ. I want us to see something about this, which relates to this thing of roles. First, before telling the man that he is head of the woman, he tells the man, Christ is the head of you. I love that. I love that God puts the man in a humbled position before he puts him in an exalted position. He's going to say, you're the head of a woman. That's an exalted position. But he also lets him know, oh, by the way, before I'm going to let you know that, Christ is your head. You are under someone's authority. And you better keep that really firmly in mind. Because if you go on trying to strut your stuff... If you go on trying to live out the natural instinct of the fall through masal, through harsh domineering, you will be violating the Lord who is over you. Interesting, too, I find that he does say the man is the head of a woman. He doesn't say of all women. He says a woman because, because men are not inherently the head of women. A man within a marriage is a head of a woman. And, and we need to keep that in mind because sometimes socially things get to the point where women can end up feeling like in every setting they're under a man. But then notice the third one. I find this so encouraging to me. It says, and God is the head of Christ. And I don't know for certain, but I kind of wonder if that has as an encouragement to the man and the woman. To the woman, it's saying, Yes, you are under somebody, but by the way, so is Christ. You're not alone. Being under somebody doesn't mean you're less than. It's also a reminder to the man that if he thinks he's something because he's over his wife, well then, do you think that God somehow struts his stuff over Christ? There's meant to be this understanding that headship, when we're imitating Christ, headship is not about authoritative dominance. Headship is about what it is in Ephesians, where it says to the man, Christ laid his life down for the church. And he's saying, so it is with you. You lay your life down for your wife.
Can you see how directly opposite that is to Masal? See, when God paints the picture of what men and women are to do, he paints a picture of exactly the opposite of what comes naturally to them because of sin. The woman is told in that passage in Ephesians, it says that she is... to subject herself to her own husband as to the Lord. Why? Well, could it be because at the fall, the most instinctive thing was this teshuga, this temptation to control? So could it be that subjecting herself to her husband doesn't come naturally, but supernaturally? In the same way that it doesn't come naturally to a man to love his wife the way Christ loved the church and gave himself up for? I think that's exactly what it's saying. And, and lest we missed it, this is, I think, further amplified by verse 21, which grammatically is actually the head of this whole section. Uh, verse 21 has a verb. Verse 22 doesn't. Verse 21 is, is a, a verse that actually kicks off everything that follows. It says, be subject one to the other in the fear of Christ. And then it tells the wife how to subject herself. I believe that when it says the man is to lay his life down for his wife, that's a form of subjecting himself. You see, I don't want to subject myself to my wife in the sense of loving her like Christ did, because what I want is I want my way. So what is God doing? What God is doing in the redemptive plan of the roles is to say, folks, apart from sin, you would have had a natural partnership. The woman would have never felt disrespected. She would have never felt looked down upon any more than the son feels looked down upon by the father. Had there never been sin, the man never would have been threatened in his sense of leadership. He would have never had a sense of doubt about himself and a, and a fear and a, and a temptation to overrun his wife or avoid his wife. None of that would have ever happened. But because of sin... Sin moved right into our roles, and it contaminated the tar out of them. To where a man, instead of loving his wife and being ahead of her like Christ, that kind of character, laying his life down for her, he throws her under the bus. He shifts the blame on her. He dis dishonors her. Now, how else do I know that? One more passage to look at. And that's in 1 Peter chapter 3. And we sometimes we know things by the description. We, we know something about what's wrong by God's description of what would be right. In chapter 3 of 1 Peter and verse 7, Peter, who is a married apostle, summarizes his command to men this way. You husbands, in the same way, live with your wives in an understanding way. That's the first thing. Well, that's apparently because that's the opposite of what, what men will naturally do. They don't naturally take the time to try to understand their wives. But that's exactly what he's commanded to do. In other words, what God's doing is he's painting the picture of what a husband was supposed to be. Uh, a husband, when you think of a husbandman, somebody who cares for either um, uh, plants or animals, husbanding has to do with nurturing and caring for. So here is this husband 
the way he's supposed to be a husband is to live with her according to understanding, which requires time and it requires putting her ahead of himself. All would have been instinctive without the fall. It's 180 degrees from what's instinctive to us after the fall. Second, it says, as with someone weaker since she's a woman. Some people will talk about, well, this is clearly talking about physical strength. There's nothing else in it about physical strength. I don't think that's what it's about. I think what it's referring to is the fact that you can have an effect on her that is more damaging than you would normally think. If you treat her like Rubbermaid rather than like Crystal, you can have a crushing effect. Now, she could be a tough girl. She could be a very able and competent and strong woman. I happen to be married to somebody like that. But there is a weakness he's referring to, which I believe is his, it's like a backward way of saying, you are to have a protective element for her. You don't treat her. You, you treat her as someone weaker. We, we have not heard that. And in fact, if it was ever heard in our society, it would be made with a mock. It would be, oh, how, yeah, she's poor little thing. She's weaker. But look at the next verse. And show her honor as a fellow heir of the grace of life. In other words, don't you dare, if you think of her as someone weaker because she's a woman, don't you dare diminish her honor or diminish the sense of equality. Because if you do, you'll end up getting, you'll, you'll get a result from God. How do I know that? It says, your, so your prayers will not be hindered. In other words, God's three commands to a man, he is telling him how a man is meant to relate to a woman because a man will have an instinctive tendency to do precisely the opposite. And God then says, so that your prayers are not hindered. Here's why I believe that's in there. It's because God's saying, if you cannot do with your wife these simple things, why in the world would you expect I would? When you pray to me, you want me to understand you. When you pray to me, you want me to treat you as someone weaker and not judge you for your sin. When, when you pray to me, you're wanting me to actually treat you as if you're my son, that you're important to me. Well, if I'm going to treat you as important, I'm going to treat you as someone weaker, but not look down upon you. And if I'm going to bother to understand you, how in the world could you not do that with your wife? Because there's far more difference between you and me than there is between you and your wife. Folks, this issue of roles in the original design, in the fall, and in the redemptive pattern. And all of that deals more within the home. It deals more within the home that I, as a man, am supposed to recognize I have a tendency to run over or criticize or not live in an understanding way or not serve my wife. Therefore, I need to be fighting against that. After 39 years of marriage, it's still the case. My wife, still, after 39 years, has to recognize she will have a tendency to want to modify me, to edit me, uh, to, to make me a better version of me. Now, if she's really helping me, the reality is that happens. And Diane has made me a better me. But wherever she would have been tempted to do it directly, it's very likely to blow up on both of us. Um, this is a very subtle thing, but roles are ingrained in actually the, the way that we walk with God actually will show up within our, our exercise of roles. I want to go to um, one other thing, because I haven't talked about it very much, although I alluded to it at the beginning when I said that we're looking primarily at our roles within the home and the church. 
Look at 1 Timothy chapter 2. We're almost at the end here. 1 Timothy chapter 2. Now, I want us to understand that if we get everything that we've said so far, that God designed the man, that he made the man first, he made the woman for the man, that he gave the man the command, he held the man responsible, the man was to be the head, the man was to lay his life down for his wife, the man will have a tendency to run over his wife, the wife will have a tendency to want to control her husband, that the redemptive pattern is that we do the exact opposite. A woman submits herself to him and sees to it that she respects him, and the man sees that he lives with her in an understanding way and lays his life down for her as a leader, that he's like Christ. That's the big picture. But how does that show up within the church? How does that show up in the church? And we can't, it's, it's worth its own complete address to deal with a woman in the church. But, but I think it's fair to say right off the beginning that if what I just got through saying is true within the home, and if there is instruction that implies that a similar type of thing goes on within the church, then we probably ought to heed that. So for example, I'm going to begin reading in 1 Timothy chapter 2, where it says to women in verse 9, Likewise, I want women to adorn themselves with proper clothing, modest, modestly and discreetly, not with braided hair, gold, pearls, or costly garments, but rather by means of good works, as is proper for women, making a claim to godliness. Verse 11, a woman must receive inst instruction with entire submissiveness. But I do not allow a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man, but to remain quiet. For it was Adam who was first created, then Eve. It was not Adam who was deceived, but the woman being deceived fell into transgression. Women will be preserved through the bearing of children if they continue in faith and love and sanctity with self-restraint. not wanting to go into all the details um, of, of that whole passage, but I believe that with respect to verse 15, when it's talking about a woman being preserved, it's talking about being preserved from a life of uselessness. If a woman feels as though, gosh, my life is going to be of little importance because I'm primarily in a support role to my husband. Um, but what he's saying is if you bear children and they, they, the children continue in faith and love and sanctity with self-restraint, you're going to actually find that great glory accrues to you because of these children who having been raised and influenced by you end up having a, a productive life. That's one of the marks of what happens to you. But notice what it says in that passage. It says that the woman is not to teach or exercise authority over a man, Now it's, but to remain quiet. Notice that's not just talking about within the home. The, the context here is clearly uh, the, wor the corporate worship um, because he's talking about how the church is to be conducted. That's the context. Well, the church is to be conducted in such a way that a woman is not to teach or exercise authority over a man. It's not talking about her husband. It's just talking about over a man. That means that within a worship context, a woman is not to be in a position where her spiritual authority places a man under her. So you have many people who visit a church like Fellowship Bible Church and ask, why are there not women elders? Why are there not women pastors? Why do women not preach? We see that everywhere else. Well, because we understand, we believe that that's what God is saying to the church, just like he's saying that to men and women in general and men and women within the family. Um, and by women, men and women in general, I just mean in the, even in the context where he's not talking about family, he's talking about the relationship of, of man and woman. Um, and so we're talking about this headship 
focused on the family, but now we've got headship sort of exercised within the church. Find another place that we see the same kind of thing, the very next chapter. Uh, the very next chapter says, it's a trustworthy statement. If any man aspires to the office of overseer, it's a fine work he desires to do. By the way, this is the very next verse after what we just read. An overseer then must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, temperate, prudent, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, and so forth. It's speaking about uh, what's called an overseer or a bishop or elder, uh, depending upon how you translate it. So it's referring to the fact that an elder of a church, someone who exercises spiritual authority over the church, is to be a man with these traits. Now, go a little bit further. It says, verse eight, deacons likewise are to be men of dignity, not double-tongued or addicted to much wine or fond of sordid gain, but holding to the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. These men must also be first tested, then let them serve as deacons if they are beyond reproach. Now, deacons have many of the same qualifications as uh, elders, but not all the same ones. It is not a replication. A deacon who is a servant within the church is different than an elder who is a shepherd responsible for the church. Now, Notice verse 11, it says, women must likewise be dignified, not malicious gossips, but temperate, faithful in all things. Now, everybody, uh, lots of people have different opinions about this. I happen to be in the minority within our church staff on this particular passage. I personally believe that verse 11 is referring to female deacons. Um, now, not everybody agrees with that. We have many women in our church who serve in roles that are like deacons. They don't have the title because as of right now, the elders don't, don't see that to mean this. And people like Mark Carey and Dondon Hartog, who have probably forgotten more than I'll ever learn, might have really good reasons for their particular positions. I happen to believe this is referring to a female deacon, and so that it's saying the women, meaning I believe it's referring to female deacons, must likewise be dignified, not malicious, gossip, temperate, faithful in all things. Now, recognize that I believe that partly because it says it here, uh, and, and partly because deacons is talked about beginning up above, verse 8, verse 9, and verse 10, and then it's talked about again in verse 12 uh, and verse 13. So every verse, verses uh, not 8, 9, 10, 11, 13, are all talking about deacons, and some have said, yeah, but verse 12, I mean, verse uh, 11 is not. So verse 8, 9, 10, and 12 and 13 are, but not verse 11. I think that's weird. But then others will say, well, no, it's referring to the wives of deacons. I find that odd because there's nothing about the wives of elders. So it, I think there's a good reason to, to believe this, um, um, but I don't think that's worth going to the wall. One of the things I would say about the mature women in our church, probably the mature women in our church, there might be quite a few who, who would look at this passage and say, I suspect it's talking about deacon, women, deacons. And they might go to the elder or send a letter and say, gosh, I'd really like you to consider this possibility. And if the deacons, the elders wrote back and said, we really have, we've looked at this, frankly, uh, in detail, and we really do believe that John's all wet again. Um, that the ma mature women among us will say, I'm okay with that. I'll continue to serve in the ways God, I just wanted to ask. And, and they're going to be okay because, frankly, people who have the quality of deacon, whether male or female, they're not really wrapped up about titles. Um, in my case, for example, at our church, I can never be an elder or a deacon um, it, because of our bylaws. As a church staff member, I can't be one of those things. So if, if people were all about titles, you could have people sit around and 
chide. We've got some really mature people who have been through divorce, for example, that the elders believe in a really solid biblical position. It's not one I happen to agree with, uh, but I really agree about how they got there. They happen to believe that uh, an elder can't be somebody who was once divorced. Now, I may be wrong. When I meet Jesus, he may say, John, you were really wrong about that. The elders had that one right too. But, but the point is the mature men in our church who happen to have been divorced, who might hold the position I do, they're mature enough that they're not sitting around arguing about whether they get to be an elder. So likewise, I'm going to go back to the idea for women within the church. Paul says that women are not to teach men within the church. First, I mean, First Timothy 3 tells us that women are, are not to be elders in the church. And I, I don't think there's any question about that. This one about deacons is, is quite another matter. Um, so I, I think as we wrap up that the thing that I want to leave us with is this, that when it comes to the roles of women within the church and the body, I think it's safe to say that from the very beginning of the Bible, at least beginning in Genesis 2, God had a design. I believe that design was that she would be a help to her husband. And if she is not married, then she is to exercise her gifts wherever and however she can. Um, I think that doesn't include being an elder, and I think that doesn't include being over a man in a church, even if she's unmarried. Uh, but I do not see anything else in the Bible that says that she really has limits. Um, and uh, so I think we've got, for example, when it comes to um, the issue of work, um, I think a woman can do whatever it is that she's gifted to do and has opportunity to do. I think the thing she does well to do, though, is if she is a if she has a family, that she looks at her first job first. Um, I believe that the example in Proverbs 31 is one of my favorite examples. Uh, verse 30, chapter 31 of Proverbs, beginning in verse 10, going down to verse 31. It's so interesting that it starts with the value she has to her husband. And it finishes with the value she is to her husband and her children. And everywhere in between, this is one of the most ambitious, capable, hardworking, strong, lovely women you could ever run across. Um, this is a woman who has international commerce. This is a woman who's involved in real estate. This is a woman who has servants. This is have people who work under her. This is a woman who manages her household well. She does all these things, but it's interesting because the passage starts with, the worth she is to her husband. And it finishes with the worth and the blessing she is to her husband and children and how they rise up and call her blessed. You see, I don't think biblically there's much limitation on what a woman can do or be. But I do believe that if she's married, she does well to realize that from the beginning, she was meant to be a help to her husband and that she never leaves that. And that if she's a mother, she has a certain responsibility to those children that involves nurturing. The father does too. But that there is a, in general, because the father is generally putting more of his responsibility on providing for and protecting the home, she may have a primary position with those kids. And invariably, it does seem as though that's the case. Probably the last passage I would refer to in that regard is um, Titus chapter 2. Because Titus chapter 2 is another picture of the redemptive picture of women. And it specifically says that when you have in a, ch in a church men, uh, men and women, it says in verses 2 through 6, or 2 through 5 or 2 through 6, it says for women, if you're a younger woman, 
it says that um, older women are to help you, they're to coach you to be lovers of your husband, to be lovers of your children, and to manage your home well. That seems to be within the church. The primary thing that older women are going to do with younger women is to coach them. And uh, that means that younger women, as they get to be older, that'll be one of the main things that they'll do. They'll also coach younger women. And um, that is at least a picture. It's an effort to portray a picture that I think God has given us partially by narr narration, the narrative of Genesis and of some of the other passages, and then one that gets fleshed out when he gets more didactic, more instructional, more directively uh, instructional to women in the New Testament. Uh, my hope is that this sheds a little bit of light on God's intention for the roles of women within the church, within the family, and with some implications for the society. Thanks for being here.